Hello and welcome to the second part of the linked podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists with Professor Graham Thornicroft, who is Professor of Community Psychiatry at King's College London. We are discussing today the two chapters that Professor Thornicroft authored in the recent Chief Medical Officer's report that focused on public mental health. The first podcast, which is also available on the website, focused on stigma and discrimination. And now we are going to look at the chapter which focused on minding the gaps, which looks at the nature of funding, access, service provision and treatment in mental health. Graham, thank you very much for joining me today. I wanted to start out by asking, what is the nature of the treatment gap for mental illness? Well, good morning, Howard, and good morning, everybody. So let's imagine that everyone in your community, in my community, who has a mental health problem can access effective care. And let's imagine that they all do go and seek help and get reasonable help. So that would mean that everybody with a problem is getting treatment and support and care, so there'd be no gap. So we'd say that that the coverage, is the jargon word, is then 100%. Let's imagine that only 10% with a mental health problem are actually getting any treatment, and that means that 90% are not. So that gap then would be 90%. So the mental health gap means the distance between those people who have a mental health problem and the smaller percentage of those people who actually get effective treatment and care. And the World Health Organization coined this term, mental health gap, a few years ago, to draw attention to the amazing neglect of people with mental health problems worldwide. The best that we do is to treat about a third of people who have a mental illness, and that's in the United States of America. And we know that from data from Kessler at Harvard and colleagues in the National Comorbidity Study and its follow-up. The worst that we do is to treat perhaps 2 or 5% of people with mental illness, and we have pretty good data here from the World Mental Health Surveys, also coordinated by Kessler, which has been applied now to 29 countries worldwide. The situation in England and in Europe isn't especially wonderful. We know, for example, from the Office of National Statistics, Meltzer et al., that for people with depression in England, only a quarter are treated. And consistent with that, we know from data from Ormel and colleagues across Europe that the proportion of people across Europe who are treated is about one quarter, meaning that three quarters are untreated. So the gap is huge, it's consistent across all countries, and nowhere do we treat even a half of people with mental illness. So I think this is a scandal, and that's what the gap means. These are really shocking figures. We hear a lot about the impact that recession and economic difficulties can have on a wide area of society's functioning. What impact does the current economic climate have on the treatment gap? Well, first of all, let's look at the level of need in times of economic austerity. And let's take one particular example, which is suicide rates. Now, for many reasons, the suicide rates across England were dropping year after year for over 10, 15 years until 2008. And there was a very positive secular trend. There were many initiatives that contributed to that. Unfortunately, since then, across the whole population and in important subpopulations like people in prison, that trend has been reversed since the crash began. And we've seen, for example, 
that the number of suicides has been actually increasing across virtually all European countries since 2008. So we can see that in some respects the level of need increases in times of economic austerity. What about the response by services? Well, on one hand, we have a positive story because the previous government made a clear policy commitment to parity. They called it parity of esteem, which means treating people with physical and with mental health problems equally in terms of how services respond. And that's the theory, that's the policy. What's happened in practice? In practice, we've seen that over about the last five or six years, spending in this country has been flat Indeed, it increased by 0.01% over that period, consistent with the government's claim that it would not reduce health service expenditure. Of course, inflation carried on. We fell behind inflation, but the absolute amount of money stayed flat. For the Chief Medical Officer's report, I had an opportunity to do something I wanted to do for some time, and this was to ask the question, is it true that mental and physical health services have been treated equally within England, and working closely with Dr Mary Doherty, we could actually try to find the answer to that question. So we went to all the sources we could find, a huge range of expert and official sources, and in fact we found very bad news. We found data that the health service expenditure on mental health care after 2010 fell by between 8 and 32%. It depends on which source you want to refer to. Even worse was the social services information, where across England we found data from the London School of Economics showing that the amount spent by social services with people with mental health problems fell by over 40% over that period. So this means a deterioration in services for people with mental illness since the recession started. And secondly, it means that we have seen what's been called either systemic or structural discrimination so that people with mental illness, services for them have been cut while services people with physical illnesses have been preserved. That is not parity. You discuss in your chapter some of the deficits in the data that is available. What data do we need to be generating, and how can it be used to get a more accurate understanding of the effectiveness of mental health services and indeed lead to their improvement? So, I mean, data is a complicated area. Let's try and simplify it. The information that's usually collected by government refers to processes. For example, how many people are admitted to hospital. For example, how many people are treated as outpatients. For example, how many staff work in hospitals or in community teams. Now, these are important because taken together, the processes contribute towards important outcomes. Are people getting better? Are people living or dying? But what really matters is understanding the outcomes as well as the processes. But it's actually much harder to gather outcome data, and we hardly do it at all. We do have suicide rates, and this is valuable, as I mentioned a moment ago. But still, they're relatively rare events. What we do have from time to time are national surveys by the Office for National Statistics on Psychiatric Morbidity, knocking door to door, counting how many people in our communities have mental illness. But still, this is relatively infrequent. What we'd really want is to know for every patient who's being treated, do people get better or not, to understand what contributes towards people's recovery and also a faster recovery, as well as other outcomes such as quality of life and satisfaction and experience of services. Now, we haven't yet solved that holy grail. There have been some initiatives to introduce those individualised patient outcomes, but they've not really taken seed in a general way, for example, across England. 
Now, another way of looking at this is not to keep saying to staff, including psychiatrists, you know, do more, do outcome measures, rate them every time, because we actually haven't found a way to make that work. But is actually cut out the middleman and go straight to patients, to service users, and say, we'd like you to tell us, as the end users or the intended beneficiaries of the care, how you rate your condition and if you feel you're getting better over a period of time. And these are sometimes called patient-generated outcomes or patient-rated outcomes, pogroms or proms and so on. There are different jargon terms, but the main issue is to take a different approach and ask patients directly to rate their own care and the impact of care. Now, any of these takes a commitment centrally from government and resources to do it. And in addition, we might well want to look at death rates, for example, and physical illness rates among people with mental illness. And we would want to have a whole set of indicators of that sort to see if we're actually making progress, for example, year by year, in reducing mental illness and its associated comorbid conditions. But at the moment, we actually don't collect most of the most important data. Clearly a very complex area, but the importance of moving towards measures that are valuable and meaningful to patients is clearly highlighted. So thank you for that. I wanted to ask now, in the context of falling real-term investment in mental health services as a whole, is the investment that we've seen in the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies programme warranted? So for listeners from outside England or Britain, the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies programme was brought in about seven years ago now for England following tremendous activity and successful initiatives by Professor Sir Richard Layard, who's an economist, London School of Economics, and Professor David Clark and colleagues. And this is a whole new programme, in addition to all the previously existing mental health services, to have a layer of psychological treatment available for people especially with anxiety and depressive disorders when it was first introduced. So this is a tremendous extra asset. This is important for a number of reasons. It's an evidence-based initiative. The initiative itself collects evidence and data to analyse its successes and to improve itself. And time after time, when we've had surveys of service users and user groups saying, what should we do to improve care? People say we want more psychological treatment, more counselling, not only being offered drugs. Now, clearly there is a place, an evidence-based place, for psychological and for pharmacological treatment. And indeed, the World Health Organization has published a couple of years ago now an amazingly fact-based approach called MHGAP, Mental Health Gap Intervention Guide. And this is based upon an exhaustive review of over 100 previous review studies to make suggestions for care in all the major types of mental illness based upon the best available evidence. So it's horses for courses. For example, for more severe depression, one would tend to use pharmacology first. For mild to moderate depression, one would tend to use psychological therapy. And for many patients, one would want to offer the choice and to be guided by patient preference. So IAPT is a tremendous asset, and indeed it's now being extended, for example, to children and to older people and to people with psychotic disorders. Nevertheless, this has been introduced at a time when the mainstream funding for mental health has been cut, as we mentioned a moment ago. So robbing Peter to pay Paul doesn't really make sense. We need both the current services and extra specific layers of quality which are based upon the best available evidence. We've seen a lot of coverage in the press about the impact of some of those cuts. Specifically, there has been a lot of media attention 
about the recent reduction in the number of inpatient beds available. What has been the impact of these closures? So it's important that we see any particular part of the mental health system, let's say beds, in the context of the system as a whole. Now, there are no surprises about the total number of people with mental illness in any country, let's say in England. We know that fairly precisely. And also there are no surprises to how often those people will be unwell and tend to relapse and may require urgent or even inpatient care. What changes is how the system responds to it in any particular country at any particular time. So let's give you an example. Following the National Service Framework and the National Plan, which were the National Plan for England for 10 years after about 2000, we introduced new types of community mental health team called Assertive Community Treatment, a model based on developments in America and in Australia. And these were designed for people perhaps aged about 30 to 50 who had psychotic disorders, weren't very keen about taking medication, often used drugs and alcohol, and quite often also may have had a forensic or criminal history. And the idea was that if you had intensive support, for example, one nurse to 15 patients, and a range of community interventions, then this would stabilise people and they would require fewer visits to hospital and fewer days, technically called bed days. And in fact, the teams would more or less pay for themselves through saving on admissions. And that's what they did. What happened when the recession started after 2008 is that many of these teams were cut. Then these patients went into general community teams where they have perhaps a nurse trying to help 30 or 40 people. The intensity of their support went down. And surprise, surprise, many of those patients then relapsed more often and required admissions to hospital again or longer stays in hospital. So you can see here the interplay between the provision of beds and the provision of community services. So you need both. Now there's no doubt that in recent years as that balance has been disturbed that we've had some very negative developments. For example it's quite common now in London if you want to admit a person to hospital not to have a bed at your own hospital sometimes not even within London, and we have had absurd situations where people are taken by ambulance 100 or 200 kilometres away to the nearest available empty bed, completely distant from family visits and support. So that is absolutely unacceptable. But in answering the bed availability question, we don't need simply to go for a knee-jerk response saying, therefore, we need more beds. We need to think about the array of supports that are necessary for people in crisis. Sometimes be beds if the person is a severe harm to themselves or others of self-neglect. Sometimes it may be strengthening a home treatment team, which will be able to visit somebody at home perhaps two or even three times a day during a period of crisis. But it means having enough capacity in all of those elements to have a balance where you can be treated locally locally and quickly when you're unwell without having to be brought long distances away to inappropriate care. This is a situation that obviously needs to be urgently addressed and as you've described a systems approach is going to be necessary. You've talked about the involvement of service users in developing meaningful outcome measures. I wanted to ask about how we can increase service user involvement more widely in service design. Well, let's imagine that you or I have, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis, or the listener perhaps, and we go to a hospital and the doctor says, lie down, I'm going to inject your, let's say, knee with a new treatment, and gives you no information about it and doesn't ask if you accept this. And indeed, 
It doesn't say whether you'd like to have this treatment offered in your local primary care surgery or in a hospital which may be, let's say, 50 kilometres away, and you're simply a passive recipient. Now, the traditional paternalistic model of medicine more or less does exactly that, which is it allows the experts to decide how treatment is delivered, which treatment, and the patients are treated as, if you like, the sort of end objects of the exercise. What we've seen in some countries, including my country here in England in recent years, is a reversal of that process. The slogan is usually, nothing about us without us, and it's applied to other areas like HIV. But the principle is that as the intended beneficiaries, as the intended end users of the service, people with particular conditions must be involved in all the critical decisions, because otherwise the decisions could go badly wrong, and patients could feel left out and neglected and actually not at the heart of the system. So let me give you one example from the area of my experience, which is in research. One of the biggest funders of healthcare research in England is called the National Institute for Healthcare Research. And a few years ago, the head of that, then who was Professor Dame Sally Davis, did a remarkable thing. When you apply for funding from this body, there's a box. And it says, what has been the service user involvement in this grant application? And there's another box underneath saying, if none, say why not? And this is stimulated... First of all, somewhat marginalistically and tokenistically, but now, much more substantively, a huge growth in service user involvement in grants about healthcare, because those, in a sense, are the people with the most profound knowledge of the effects of the treatment. And indeed, many service user groups now call themselves experts by experience. So I think that principle is right. Now, it doesn't mean that people planning services always do only exactly what they're told by service groups, but you take very seriously what service groups and service users are saying because they're an important part of the constellation of groups who need to get together and actually decide what is most important to do and how to do it as you plan and implement intended improvements in the healthcare system. Thank you. I'd like to finish by asking what measures you feel need to be taken for us to reduce the treatment gap. Let me start with my own country again here in England, as we sit here in May 2015 by Tower Bridge on the River Thames. We've seen earlier in this discussion huge drops in the amount of government money allocated to mental health care, and we've also discussed some of the consequences of that. We see few people getting treated, and the treatment that is given being diluted, sometimes severe effects where people might be admitted to hospital more often if they have lesser support. So the first thing is to restitute those gaps, to put them back into place, the funds which are lost, so we can actually try to improve the system, not see it gradually deteriorating. This would be, in fact, putting into practice what is already government policy, the policy on parity between physical and health care. Secondly, there's a critical aspect of the interplay between the physical and the mental, especially where people who have physical illnesses will be routinely asked for example, by their family doctor, about their mental health. And at least a third of people with long-term conditions, physical conditions, will also have anxiety or depression or a combination of the two, often missed. Now, there's a good reason to think why addressing the comorbidity problem can pay real dividends. And let's take one specific example, which is people who are HIV positive or who have AIDS. Again, the figures are showing that at least a third of those people would be depressed. And if you have HIV and you are depressed, then you are less likely to take your antiretroviral treatment at all or properly. Therefore, you are more likely to die. So if depression is not identified and treated among people who are HIV positive, then the course of the depression will be worse because it's untreated, but also the course of the HIV will be worse as well. So this is a win-win. 
where you treat both the physical and the mental health problems at the same time, and the outcomes for both will be better. So I think we have to take seriously the question of comorbidity and how we in tandem address physical and mental health problems at the same time because of the interaction between the two. Graham, thank you very much for this fantastic summary of the shocking treatment gap that exists in mental health service provision and for highlighting some of the potential answers that we have, such as increasing the involvement of service users and ensuring that we are collecting data that really focuses on meaningful outcomes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Howard.